Hi everybody, how are you doing? It's Boozy back again for episode 19 of Boozy's Legal Funhouse. What the fuck did I name this one? I, I literally, I wrote the name down and then I immediately forgot what name I would wrote. Boozy's Legal Funhouse episode 19, Drunken Felonies Still Count. Tonight in the studio, uh, well, not in the studio, appearing remotely from the middle of the country, Bumfuck Egypt, your prosecutorial rat, Mr. Scuff. Scuff, say hi. Hi. All right. Tonight we're going to be talking about the defense of intoxication in criminal matters. But before we do that, I have to give you our general disclaimer that I forgot to give you last time. Boozy's Legal Funhouse is an educational, informational, and hopefully entertaining look at general legal principles as they exist throughout this country and discussions of specific cases or legal matters. While everybody appearing on the program is a licensed attorney, we are not your attorneys. The only way that we become your attorneys, if we are indeed in private practice, is you locate our information, you call our offices, you make an appointment, you come in, you discuss your case with us, we decide we will accept representation, we hand you an engagement contract which you sign, you pay a retainer in an amount of our choosing. At that point, we have become your attorneys. In all other circumstances, we do not represent you. There is no attorney-client privilege that attaches. Do not ask questions about specific legal instances you may be facing, especially in a chat. There is no attorney-client relationship. For God's sake, do not take what you hear tonight and go out and say, a fat man who acts like a cartoon badger on the internet told me to do it. It will not hold up in court. As always, the best way to get any type of legal advice is to seek out and retain a licensed attorney in your jurisdiction. That said, Scuff, how has your week gone? It's only Monday. We record these live on Mondays. How has your week gone? Everything is on fire, and <laughs> it's uh, it's still Monday, so... Welcome to a new week! <laughs> the the I, world I, I is in say, flames! I will say, as to your disclaimer, uh, sometimes it applies even more than normal. Uh, the thing we're talking about tonight is highly, highly jurisdiction-specific. So do not take what we say and think like, oh, I'm a master of the subject now, because... When we say your mileage may vary, there are states with wildly different laws as applied to intoxication as a criminal defense. As will become clear, the law changes from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. You can never take a blanket statement of general legal principles and apply it to your specific situation without first speaking to a licensed attorney in your state. Before we get into my week, let me read off the names of the Patreon supporters of Boozy's Legal Funhouse at the $5 producer level and above. So special thank you to Jarl the Spirit Wolf, Dragor, Jack of All Korgs, Nikolai, Tezcat, Magic Jag, Waylon DeRoche, Beaton, Those of the Trash Panda, Eddie the Weatherfox, Mark Beckwar, Mama T, Uncle Kage, Ask Jeeves, Evelyn Klein, Lisa Lupe, Mark Phaedrus, Netherlinks, Pandemonium Hawk, Petroff Neutrino, Tyranth, Buddy Goodboy, CC Otter, Chroma Hydra, David Hunter, Ed B. Galley, Evie Feck, Ghost Goat, Grace Jane Gollinger, Ian Delahorn, Jason Knight, Jeremy the Head Fox, 
Just Dave, Just James, Calic, Coma, Blood, Paul, Mark, Whipple, Michael Blocker, Sean Rabbit, The Dragon Show, Wheelie, and Zero Slime. If you'd like to be one of those wonderful people, you can do that over at patreon.com slash lawyers and liquor. Just a general reminder, this is recorded live. We record live every week. I don't have the patience to edit it. So if we fuck it up, we fuck it up. It stays. It adds to the ambiance. Now, for those of you who may be watching the recording live, and for those of you listening at home when this episode goes live on the podcast service of your choice, I am wearing my very special Father's Day tie that my children got me yesterday. I wore that in court this morning, actually, where I had a new experience uh, typically, in these types of matters, I do not represent the plaintiffs. The plaintiffs actually get free lawyers most of the time. Today I walked in representing a plaintiff in this case, and trust me, the free lawyers were astounded to see me at the plaintiff's table. It was They actually told me, they said, we were not expecting to see you at that table. And I said, yeah, shit happens. Uh, so that's that's how my day's gone. A little bit of the new part uh, of my practice. That said, we have to look into tonight's legal news. Uh, Scuff, uh, I am certain that as you have not reviewed the articles, these will all be interesting to you. Uh, first off, Scott, attorneys are professionals, right? I would like to hope so. We raise above schoolyard name-calling and squabbles, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, that was just, you got something caught in your throat, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're definitely not laughing at the concept that attorneys can be petty. Uh, like the attorneys in this case were a judge chided lawyers in tit-for-tat squabbles and shenanigans and sanctioned one for telling the other to shut up. From the ABA Journal, uh, two attorneys who go against each other fairly frequently, Adi Admit and Elliot Kozolchik, uh, were engaged in a series of depositions while we were all in quarantine on remote things. Now, they are frequent opponents in wage and hour cases and apparently were normally very congenial, professional, and respectful to each other uh, until, as U.S. Magistrate Judge Jarrett M. Strauss of the Southern District of Florida stated in his June 11th order, such professionalism came to a screeching halt. <laughs> that's always something you want to see in an order. Um, the professionalism came to a screeching halt as the lawyers started to engage in tit-for-tat squabbles and accusations that have done nothing but waste the court's time, their own time, and their client's money. Strauss referred to them as shenanigans that reasonable and professional attorneys do not engage in. Now, how did this get started? Uh, these two attorneys were engaged in a series of remote depositions, three remote depositions, uh, when a court reporter that had been used in a different case 
uh, between the two became the focus of such depositions. According to Kolchik, the court reporter in a different case said that she couldn't hear him and asked him to remove his mask which he uh, refused to do. In the same deposition, he later asked whether she had transcribed an objection he made correctly. Uh, the court reporter then said, no, because I can't hear you. Uh, <laughs> afterwards, um, Abbott, and what I'm certain was not a, um, a, a exercise of pure pettiness, uh, then scheduled another deposition with the exact same court reporter. Oh my God. Uh, How do you not know better than to, to mess with the court reporters? Cause of like, I mean, like, I just, it, this, you practice for about four or five years and you know, like you can mess with a lot of people, but the judge's assistant and the court reporters are not two of them. Kozlecek objected to the use of that court reporter uh, and probably said more than what was necessary. However, Mr. Amit then yelled twice, shut the fuck up. Uh, the deposition then continued. That was April 22nd. On April 27th, these two had another deposition. And uh, you would think that Amit would, after that blow up, have gone to a different court reporter, right? Absolutely not. Scheduled the same court reporter again. Uh, Kozlecek again objected. The court reporter's responses made things worse rather than better. And Mr. Amit and Mr. Kozlecek then engaged in a back and forth squabble, including silly arguments over who had argued with whom. The next day, they had another deposition. Amit, I'm assuming noticing the deposition, hired the court reporter. Certainly, after two times, Amit would have hired another court reporter. Nope! Nope. <laughs> Amit no. hired the same court reporter. Kozlecek began the deposition by saying, Do you hear me and are you transcribing everything I'm saying? Uh, he then again said more than was necessary. Uh, the court reporter, uh, or both lawyers then engaged in extended and proper dialogue. Amit then said that if he was the court reporter, he would sue Kozlecek for def defamation and file a bar complaint. The, the court reporter later said she may do so. At some point during this pr process, Amit cursed, saying either fuck you or fuck off. Apparently, the transcript was unclear. Uh, as a result of this, Magistrate Judge Strauss uh, said that Amit's profane language was clearly unprofessional and unacceptable, and indeed a continuation of such conduct could be grounds for a referral to the Florida Bar. Uh, what ended up coming out of this? Uh, Kozlecek is expected to write his time off on the dispute, although uh, no motion for sanctions was filed against him. And Adi Amit has been ordered as a sanction to write off all of the time that he incurred for this dispute. Once again, lawyers just behaving as, as consummate professionals. Up next... 
uh, in a pure question of being, hey, Scuff, you're a prosecutor. Let me ask you, how often do pro se defendants normally do in front of you? Oh, uh, how how often or how well? How how well? Uh, I mean, a sovereign citizen once beat me in court, so I can't say that they never win. But you know, every not not usually, it's not the best idea. Well, what would you think if uh, a pro se counsel effectively filed what was an ineffective assistance of counsel appeal? Uh, I mean, you have the right to represent yourself, but I don't know if you have the right to complain about your counsel in those circumstances. Pro se defendants' grandiose remarks are not disqualifying, the Fourth Circuit has ruled, stating that some trial lawyers are outright narcissists. Um, this all arose because a Joseph Ziegler, who, was, who represented himself on charges of impersonating a federal officer, uh, made statements, grandiose statements in court about his legal acumen. He was combative towards witnesses. His questions were bizarre. His theories and his arguments all should have raised red flags. Uh, that is Ziegler's perception. Now, what Ziegler basically said was that he had the right and the ability to represent himself in court, that he had done so in the past and won because the government had falsified evidence. Uh, completely not true. He actually said he has published cases in which he would represented himself. Ziegler stated, I'm very familiar with all 27 amendments of the United States Constitution, various SCOTUS cases, and I've successfully assisted prisoners inside of jails and prisons across America. He claimed familiarity with writs of habeas corpus, quorum nobis, and the like. In reality, his other pro se conviction was reversed because a judge failed to follow proper statutory procedures in allowing self-representation. Uh, after Ziegler had filed pretrial motions in the impersonation case, the judge said, hey man, you may want to let a lawyer represent you. It's obvious to me, said the trial judge, that you're not a sophisticated person as far as your knowledge of the law. Ziegler refused this, demanded that he be allowed to represent himself. Uh, he cross-examined people extensively, asked several strange questions, argued with witnesses and the judge, but as the appellate court said, he also gave opening and closing arguments, made good points on cross, had objections sustained, and introduced evidence, including three witnesses. Uh, while not always accurate, the Fourth Circuit said, Ziegler's statements reflected his ability to consider legal concepts and strategy, even if those strategies were ill-advised. Ziegler, after the fact, basically appealed, saying they never should have let me represent myself. Did you look at the shit I was saying? Um, you know, I, I was bombastic and grandiose, and well, you never should have agreed to let me do this. Uh, the Fourth Circuit, though, said, uh, and, you know, and play stupid games, win stupid prizes, Ziegler did quite well for someone proceeding pro se. His apparent ability to consider strategic choices, develop a defense strategy, and operate in the courtroom is all evidence of competence to stand trial and waive the right to counsel. The, uh, the fun part of this comes with, you remember that statement about red flags earlier? 
Many great trial lawyers are combative and a bit full of themselves, if not outright narcissists, found the Fourth Circuit, which... I don't know. What What do you think, Scuff? I... I never heard i've never heard of her i don't i don't know what they're talking about yeah a trial lawyer being a never never i can tell you one of the scariest parts about this case for me practicing in kansas though with that when that judge said i don't think you should represent yourself if he had opted for counsel at that point in kansas that structural error in the entire case would have gotten reversed oh that's ridiculous yeah, it is totally ridiculous. So before the stream started, I told you we have a hyperactivist court and they make a lot of really silly decisions. That was one of them. They said the judge offering any opinion as to the competency or efficacy of a defendant representing themselves interferes with their constitutional right to self-representation and is structural error if the defendant then seeks counsel. So, sir, you wrote your motion and feces. It is 27 pages of human feces formed into letters. You may want to hire a lawyer. Well, that's a mistrial. Uh, it is. It is. In the state of Kansas, it is. That is. I'm not even, I'm not even exaggerating. Like, that's what's so insane. That is a horrible idea. Yes. I mean, yes, but the Kansas Supreme Court disagrees with us. So, so, so that's. So what you're telling me is in Kansas, the Supreme Court has basically said, yeah, yeah, maybe you should make them aware that you think they'd do better with counsel, but no, let them go ahead with it. I mean, I'm not sure I'd call that hyperactivist. It literally contradicts dicta they had released three years prior, where they said the district court has the duty to warn a defendant if they believe the counsel is incompetent at trial. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I, that, that's, I, I would say that that's not hyperactivist. That's the other way. Stupid. Yeah, that's, that's Stupid. discouraging the court from telling somebody, hey, um, you're your lawyer, but your lawyer sucks. <laughs> I, look, man, I just practice here. <laughs> I, I mean... That's just oh, well, our, uh, nothing's gonna beat that for legal fuckery. But let's <laughs> let's see if we can try. Uh, our last news story tonight, citing a lack of evidence, a prosecutor has dropped a summons against the appeals judge accused of almost hitting a protester. Uh, a specially appointed prosecutor from North Carolina will not be pursuing charges against a North Carolina appeals judge who was accused of nearly hitting a Black Lives Matter protester with his SUV. The prosecutor has said that Judge John M. Tyson uh, did not, there's not sufficient evidence to show that he was intentionally attempting to hit anybody. Uh, the summons had accused him of assault with a deadly weapon after a Black Lives Matter protester claimed he had nearly hit her with his SUV during a May 7th protester. Uh, video release showed the SUV driving close to the protesters in a lane not open to traffic. The summons, which was brought by an individual, it was a uh, an individual criminal complaint, uh, which I don't know if you have those in Kansas, Scuff, uh, has now been dismissed, and the judge is not really facing discipline. Uh, do you all have individual criminal complaints in Kansas? 
Uh, what well, like I guess I just don't understand what an individual criminal complaint it's would be. It's where basically the DA has said we're not going to prosecute this, like we're not going to charge it, but uh, we'll let you prosecute it if you want. If you want to waste your time and resources on it, go right ahead. Hmm. No, I mean, like, certain times we'll appoint a special prosecutor if we, our office is found to have a conflict of conflict in a specific case, well, we, but I, I don't... Here in PA, we have them. They're private criminal complaints. You only really see them hmm. uh, in front of, like, the magistrate for, like, small shit, trespassing, you know, bad checks, shit like that. Uh, and the whole idea is you can file it, but you have to have a DA actually sign. Like the DA's office that says, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we're, mm. we're declining it, but if you think you can make the case, go ahead. Um, and it allows the private party to bring a criminal complaint against somebody. Uh, very rarely used. You only, like I said, you normally only see them in things like harassment cases or stuff like that going up in front of the magistrate. But we do have them here in Pennsylvania. No, I mean, we, nothing equivalent. We have citizens' grand juries, and that's about the closest thing I could what think the, of. Like what that. the fuck is a citizens' grand jury? The citizens of a state literally petition for a grand jury to be formed to investigate a crime. Well, I don't think we should be trusting the citizens of Kansas to determine whether or not a crime's been committed. It... it it's a story uh, it's a story for another day i'd have to like go research it but there's a real famous case in kansas city kansas where i used to work where a citizens grand jury indicted basically the heads of the utility board and one of them committed suicide because they were like absolutely laundering money and the citizens grand jury found out about it and like one of them killed himself and the uh, at least one of the other ones was convicted and then it was later reversed on procedural grounds but yeah there was it's a citizens grand jury I can, I'll, at some point, we'll look it up and talk yeah, about it. Yeah, that's, that's that. I, I would, I would love to see that one. I, I genuinely yeah. would. Uh, so, tonight our topic is diminished capacity and can you be too drunk to commit a crime? That is speaking, of course, of the defense of intoxication to a criminal charge. I am by no means the expert on this, and I'll explain why as we go on. So, I am deferring a good chunk of tonight's discussion of the current state of intoxication as a defense to our good friend Scuff. Now, Scuff, I have your PowerPoint. That's right, this this PowerPoint. The PowerPoint that will be up for our Patreon supporters uh, when this episode goes live on the podcast service of this choice. It wasn't prepared by me this time. It's not 40 pages of minutia. Scuff did this one themselves. I'm so proud of them. Uh so I am going to go ahead and put it live. And Scuff, you take the ball. I'll just be uh, go- rotating through slides. Okay. This is a brand new adventure for, for us in this. Uh, so didn't, when we talk about intoxication, what we're talking about generally is the concept of diminished capacity. That means in some way you don't have the ability to form the intent to commit a crime. So... Before we can get into this, we're going to have to review some legal concepts. And Boozy and I actually talked about a couple of these a few weeks ago. We talked about mens rea and specifically how it applied to something called strict liability. Well, it's pretty important for this concept, too. So let's just do a quick review. Mens rea is basically the mental state you have to have to commit a crime. You have to be you have to have a specific 
mindset that makes you guilty. And generally, we break mens rea, criminal intent, or what we call culpable mental state, into one of three categories. Intentional, knowing, and reckless. There's also strict liability, but that's a little bit different. That's actually being able to commit a crime without mens rea. So when we're talking about mens rea, we're talking about these three things. Intentional, uh, knowing, and reckless. So the two that we really need to focus on when we're talking about diminished capacity are intentional crimes and knowing crimes. So intentional crimes are what you might expect crimes committed with intention. And uh, I've just quoted the Kansas version of this, but this language is pretty much equivalent to what you'll find in most states that have developed uh, what's called a culpable mental state approach to crime. And with intention, it says, with respect to the nature of a person's conduct or to a result of such person's conduct, when it is such person's conscious and objective or desire to engage in the conduct or cause the result, all crimes defined in this code, which... Uh, the mental culpability requirement is expressed as intentionally or with intent are specific intent crimes. So the general example, uh, or I'll do that in a second. So let's go on to what knowingly means because knowingly is, if you're not a lawyer, it seems like they might be about the same thing, but knowing is a person acts knowingly or with knowledge with respect to the nature of such person's conduct or to the circumstances surrounding such person's conduct when such person is aware of the nature of such person's conduct or that the circumstances exist. A person acts knowingly or with knowledge with respect to a result of such person's conduct when such person is aware that such person's conduct is reasonably certain to cause the result. All crimes defied in the code which in which the mental culpability requirement is expressed as knowingly or known or with knowledge are general intent crimes of such so, person up oh, such person oh, sorry so, like I, I guess oh my god how many times hold on i want to count real quick before we move <laughs> on one two three four five six seven that there are seven times the phrase such person shows it shows up three times in one sentence I, I will not say that the Kansas legislature is the most uh, literary governing body this, that's ever existed. This is like the word scramble of legislative uh, writing. What, what the sure. fuck? You're actually also experiencing right now in this chat why we go to law school, which is to descramble this stuff. So how do we descramble it? Well, luckily on the next slide, we kind of break it down. <laughs> I've moved forward. Crimes break down generally by the idea of specific intent and general intent. Knowingly is general intent. General intent means that a prosecutor must prove that the accused intended to commit an illegal act, but doesn't necessarily have to prove that they intended the result of the act. So the example that we give is battery. I intend to commit a battery. I intend to punch you, but I don't necessarily intend the outcome. If I punch you, you fall on the ground, you hit your head and it breaks open and you suffer great bodily harm. I didn't necessarily intend the great bodily harm, but I did intend the battery. So basically, if you're conscientious of the action you're taking that is against the law, you have committed, you have committed a crime knowingly, you have the general intent. 
Intentional is specific intent. That means I don't just intend the action, I intend the result. And the best example of this is intentional murder. You intentionally murder someone when you kill another person and your intent was to kill them. I fire a gun at you with the intent to kill you. I am coming at you and beating you over and over with the intent to kill you. So specific intent requires the understanding and intent of the outcome. But general intent only requires you to have the intent for the act. The, the, yeah, the, the good way to put this is general intent is I intended to act in the way I did. Specific intent is I intended for the act I took to have the result it did. Yep. Um, actually, uh, so someone asked a question, wouldn't punching someone alone by definition be bodily harm? And the answer is no. Battery just requires contact. It doesn't require offensive, generally offensive conduct. Yeah. So it's conduct of a rude, insulting, or offensive nature is battery. So as long as it's that, it doesn't actually require the harm. So anything that results from that is beyond what's required for battery. Now, when I told you your mileage may vary, this is super important. Because some states define, when we say something is aggravated, like aggravated battery, aggravated assault, what we mean is a simple crime with circumstances that make it worse, what we call aggravating factors. In certain states, aggravated battery is battery with the intent to cause great bodily harm or battery with the intent to cause maiming, scarring, disfiguring. In other states like Kansas, battery is just battery when those things result. We don't require specific intent as to the great bodily harm in aggravated battery. We only require general intent with a result. You don't have to intend the result, you just cause the result. So this is really important because every state's different. What you've got to prove is different. And if you're the defense attorney, what you have to defend is different. So, on to intoxication. That's why we all came here, to get intoxicated. <laughs> so, there's generally speaking two kinds of intoxication. The first is involuntary intoxication. That is, I didn't know that I had consumed an intoxicating substance, or I did not know that the substance I was consuming would have an intoxicating effect. And I did some very, very bad law school research and pulled the first ALJ article I could find. And these were the examples it gave. So, you know, they may not be the best, but they'll work for now. Um, so one thing that they talked about is the unintended or unlikely side effect of a prescription drug. And the example used in that case was insulin-induced hypoglycemia, uh, causing mania. Because insulin... There is a small possibility that will happen, but it is generally not the expected result of someone taking insulin. The side effect could be used as an involuntary intoxication. Some courts have also found that when the side effect of a drug was not explained to a patient, the fact that they took the drug and it resulted in a side effect, but it was never explained to them might also be involuntary intoxication. Voluntary intoxication, on the other hand, is you took the thing, you knew what it did, you wanted the result. I, 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 drunk, I drank alcohol, I got drunk, I knew I could get drunk. 
I smoked the weed. I got the high. High is what I knew I could be. I took the meth. I can't explain why, because why does anyone take meth? And I did a bunch of crazy stuff. I knew I was taking meth. Did you did you just say I smoked the weed? I said I smoked the weed. All right, there, Grandpa. Okay. I've <laughs> got to act. I've got to act a little bit out of touch. I am a prosecutor. I smoked. If I, if I, I act too down the, the marijuana. If I if I if I act too down to earth, the kids might trust me, and then you know not ask for their attorney before answering questions. <laughs> so those are the differences between voluntary and involuntary intoxication. Now, why does it matter? And this is the more important factor. Voluntary intoxication allows you to counter both specific and general intent because the standard for involuntary intoxication is based on the intoxication the accused could not conform his or her conduct to the requirements of law in other words your intoxication meant that you couldn't form even the general intent to commit a crime voluntary intoxication classically in the united states could only be used as a defense to specific intent. That is, the accused was so intoxicated that they could not form the requisite intent to commit the crime. You meaning voluntary intoxication was generally only a defense to something like intentional first-degree murder. I was so drunk, I could not have intended to kill the person. But it isn't a defense to something that is just general defense, general intent. And lastly, this is very important. Both voluntary and involuntary intoxication are what we call affirmative defenses. When I say something's an affirmative defense, what I mean is, Boozy, if we're in, if we're in court and I'm giving my theory of the case, and, and me, prosecutor, I'm just talking about, like, this is my theory of the case. This is my theory of the case. This is my theory of the case. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to object. It's a theory, motherfucker. Sure. <laughs> if we're, if we're, and if we're having this conversation out of court, I imagine you're going you're gonna to lean back in your chair. You're going to cross your arms. And what are you going to say to me? Fuck off. Prove it. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean prove it, right? Like, that's great, but theories aren't facts, right? Prove it. And, and actually, I I would be a little cuter. I've left the slide up long enough; everybody can see it. Who's watching it? I would be a little cuter. I would say something I I, I actually do say, which is, Yana, we object. If the prosecution is going to testify, we'd ask they be sworn first. I mean, you can swear at me all day. But yeah, <laughs> prove it. The prosecutor has the burden in a criminal case. Boozy doesn't have to prove anything. I can get done with my case. He can cross his arms, say, Your Honor, defense rests. And if I haven't proved part of my case, actually, he wins. Actually, no. I wouldn't even say, Your Honor, defense rests. I'd say, I go, Your Honor, we move for a directed verdict. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. You didn't move for a directed verdict. If I don't prove my case, I lose. But... The reason affirmative defenses are important is because the defense does need to prove those. So in an affirmative defense, the defense side has to present evidence to show those things exist. And the reason why intoxication and diminished capacity 
are so interesting in the law is they're one of the areas where the burden flips. In order for a defendant to get intoxication as a defense, they have to offer basically what we would generally break down as two standards. They have to prove objectively that someone was under the influence. And then they have to prove subjectively that that defendant was under the influence to a degree that they couldn't form the intent to commit the crime. What that generally means in practice is that if a defense is going to raise a diminished capacity and voluntary intoxication, the defendant has to testify. External factors like their blood alcohol content, observations about them are probably not going to be enough. They are going to have to get on the stand and say, I have no memory. I didn't know what I was doing. Or there's going to have to be some real solid evidence, like, say, a video of them just so fall down drunk, unable to do anything, unable to articulate words, that you're going to be able to just use that. But it has, in court, both an objective and a subjective standard. And the reason this is also, and I always say the reason this is important is, if you want to know why this stuff matters, it's because at the end of a criminal case, the two sides get together and we come up with a list of instructions that we give to the jury. So the jury decides a case based on the facts that are presented in the trial and then the instructions that the court gives it. And it gets those instructions from us, from Boozy and me, at the end of the court. Boozy can only offer instructions to the jury on defenses, on affirmative defenses, if those defenses have been proven at trial. So it's not enough. If, the, if someone gets up and says, yeah, I saw... I saw John Smith drink three shots before the murder happened. That's not enough. So, one, the jury doesn't get instructed on voluntary intoxication. Two, and this is almost as important, sometimes the evidence of intoxication can be left out or struck from the record if you can't establish both factors. So it's extremely this is a big gamble for defenses because it's not as simple as just throwing something against the wall and hoping it sticks. If you're going for it, you have to, sometimes you have to go all in and you have to be ready to put your client on the stand, which not all the time does defense attorney want to do. Uh, so that's generally the overview on voluntary intoxication. Now, why is this a thing? And this is actually, uh, uh, as always, to the people listening at home, if you're Patreon supporters, my research notes will be up on Patreon uh, later today for you. Uh, why is this a thing, though? Because it wasn't. This wasn't a thing under English common law. Back in 1551, uh, English courts basically said, and this is a quote from the 1551 case Renninger v. Vogasa, if a person that is drunk kills another, this shall be a felony, and he shall be hanged for it. And yet he did it through ignorance, for when he was drunk he had no understanding nor memory. But inasmuch as that ignorance was occasioned by his own act and folly, and he might have avoided it, he shall not be privileged thereby. The English common law, uh, which 
is the foundation of American jurisprudence, said, you can't go out, get so drunk that you commit a crime, and then say, I was so drunk I didn't know what I was doing, and benefit from it. You're just as guilty drunk as you were sober. Now, towards the end of the late 19th century, American jurisprudence started to move away from that. Up until uh, the late 1800s, a large number of American jurisdictions followed that English common law approach. Intoxication is not a defense. You don't get to get shit-faced, shoot Mary Lou in the face, and then say, I was so drunk that I didn't intend to do that. Uh, The idea... Behind that being that when people are intoxicated, they actually do kind of lose control of themselves. They may not know what they're doing. And it became a way to defend against crimes. I was so drunk, I did this thing that I never would have done had I been sober. The 60s and the 70s, the 1960s, the 1970s became really sort of the heyday. That became when this became a big thing in vogue. The AMA had recognized alcoholism as a disease with one court, even commenting that all voluntary intoxication was, in a sense, involuntary. That it was no more fair to punish an alcoholic for getting drunk and committing a crime than it would be to punish uh, somebody who was mentally ill, who couldn't control their behavior at that. Uh... In fact, one quote was, if a man is punished for doing something when drunk that he would not have done when sober, is he not, in plain truth, punished for getting drunk? The problem became, when people get shit-faced, people tend to commit more crimes. No. No. Statistically, spousal abuse rose. Aggravated assault rose. A study at the time found that 50% of all homicides included an inebriated offender. Property offenses, rapes, all of these things started to rise. So jurisdictions kind of went, what do we do about this? And they started to strike a compromise. In some jurisdictions, they said, okay, General intent, we're not going to let voluntary intoxication stand. We're not going to let you get drunk uh, and say that you couldn't form the general intent to do a criminal act. Specific intent, we'll let it stand. You can prove uh, voluntary intoxication as a defense to specific intent. But some jurisdictions went even further. In Montana... In the 1980s, a couple guys went out picking mushrooms. Um, and they go out there, they're picking mushrooms, a gentleman named Egelhoff. And they run into two other people, they pick mushrooms, they sell them, they go out, they go on the town, they get shit-faced, they get drunk. They're having a grand old time. Uh, Egelhoff testifies that one of his last memories was sitting on a hill passing a bottle of hooch back and forth with them, and then the police found one of the other guys' station wagons uh, in a ditch with the two guys Egelhoff had ran into dead in the front seats with bullet holes in their head and a gun missing two bullets on the floorboard, and Egelhoff in the back of the car with a .36 blood alcohol level ranting at the police. 
when he went up to trial, uh, Montana had put in place a law that said voluntary intoxication is not a defense to murder. Uh, the Egelhoff basically argued, I, I should have been allowed to present that evidence because at the time the 14th Amendment had come into play, we had started moving away from that. Therefore, I have a due process right to present the defense of voluntary intoxication. That went all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States, that 14th Amendment question. And in a plurality decision, Montana v. Egelhoff uh, 518 U.S. 37, 1996. Antonin Scalia, writing for the court in the plurality decision, said, Fuck you! You don't get to choose the voluntary intoxication defense. No due process rights were removed. Scalia's opinion, which once again will be in the show notes, uh, was based very heavily on the history at English common law of voluntary intoxication not being a defense, uh, and then followed through to discuss in detail how at the time the 14th Amendment was ratified, while it may have been fallen out of favor, nothing had come in to say it had to be accepted. The, uh, the bar on that. So it was up to the states to say... Is intoxication a defense at all, or only in some circumstances? Is it, is it a bar to some crimes and not other crimes? Uh, and the Supreme Court plurality decision basically said, yeah, the states can decide whether they want to allow it or not. Now, Scuff, you're out in Kansas. Do you have the intoxication defense in Kansas? Yes, we absolutely do. What are the strictures of the intoxication defense in Kansas? It voluntary intoxication can only be a defense to particular intent, which was classically in Kansas interpreted to mean to specific intent crimes. But in the last, I am not joking, two years, the Supreme Court has somewhat suggested that they are going to expand that to both general intent crimes with some specific intentional nature, which figure out what that means. Uh, and so it's, it's expanding probably. Let me ask a uh, scuff in Kansas is rape specific or general intent specific. Okay. You know, in some jurisdictions, it's general intent. The harm is in the, in the result in the act. So, in a jurisdiction where uh, something like rape is general intent and intoxication applies only to specific intent, we could agree that uh, intoxication would not be a defense, correct? Correct. Okay. Incohate offenses are always specific intent, though, aren't they? Oh, remind me, man. Uh, incohate and attempt it. Offense. Oh, it's always specific because it is in furtherance of that. You intend to take yeah. the action in furtherance of it. So in that situation where you would have uh, the intoxication defense limited only to specific intent. Wouldn't it be a result that if rape was general intent, it wouldn't serve as a defense to that but it would serve then as a defense to an attempted rape? 
Hmm. I think there would be a good argument that to that. And that's not only a good argument. That's actually something that has occurred. Yeah. Where I mean, as you're explaining it, that makes sense. Legally, it makes sense, I should say. Like, I don't know if morally. We, lawyers don't often ask that second question. I just another quick disclaimer for the chat. But I, that is that is the thing, though. That's part of the issue with allowing uh, intoxication only for specific intent or allowing it at all when it's voluntary intoxication is it can have the absurd result of, well, if you attempt to do it, you can claim intoxication. But if you actually do it, you can't. Uh, how can you not be guilty of the attempt because you're too drunk, but then be guilty of the act because you're not. Or vice versa in some cases. Yeah. Ah, I've broken the prosecutor's brain. I can see it. Well, I mean, that's like, I'm, I guess in my case, it's less. It's not something I ever had to think about because the, the specific. It's hard to think in Kansas of a specific intent crime where you can commit an attempt well, let me, let me or, ask I'm sorry, not a, a general intent crime where you can commit an attempt. Almost all of those are legal fictions. Let me let me give you uh, a, a better example. Okay, let's say a trucker's driving home. He stops to get some coffee, okay? And as he's walking out, a guy walks up to him and says, Hey, man, uh, I've got something that'll keep you awake. Let me put it in your drink. He says, Okay. And the guy at some point says, this is some crack. Now, this is well before anybody, you know, maybe the guy's lived an honest life. He doesn't know what crank is. He thinks it's just a caffeine pill, right? The guy puts some high-quality uppers in his drink. The trucker drinks them and begins to hallucinate there are snipers on the roadside. He blacks out. He has no idea what he's doing, but he's leading the police on a chase, side-swiping cars, injuring people, until finally he comes to a sense of stops and begins screaming, Oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? He is arrested and taken in. He claims he was involuntarily intoxicated. Does that stand up? Probably not. It absolutely did not. That is an actual case out of Tennessee. Huh. The court held in that case that whether or not he knew it was crank, or what crank was, whether or not he knew it was speed, he allowed them to place something in his drink. Therefore, the intoxication was voluntary in nature. And you may be asking, what does that matter? Well, you remember at the beginning of this, we said the law differs greatly from state to state. And I said, I'm going to let Scuff take the lead on talking about voluntary intoxication. Very good reason for that. And that reason is found in 18 Pennsylvania Consolidated Statute 308, Intoxication or Drugged Condition. You may remember, I'm a Pennsylvania lawyer. And Pennsylvania law states neither voluntary intoxication nor voluntary drugged condition is a defense to a criminal charge, nor may evidence of such conditions be introduced to negative the element of intent of the offense, except that evidence of such intoxication or drugged condition of the defendant may be offered by the defendant whenever it is relevant to reduce murder from a higher degree 
to a lower degree of murder. Pennsylvania has banned the voluntary intoxication defense with the only exception being a lesser degree of murder. We have not banned involuntary intoxication. However, it's very limited. In the 2003 case, Commonwealth v. Smith from the Superior Court of Pennsylvania, they actually discussed that. In this case, Miss Smith was stopped driving home one evening by a Pennsylvania state police officer. They pulled her over. She was bombed. She was completely out of it. They found that she had a duragesic patch for pain on. She would later testify she did not realize that the patch would enhance the effects of the alcohol she had had that evening and that she was over the limit without knowing, essentially claiming, I was involuntarily intoxicated. My doctor never told me not to use alcohol while I was on it. And the instructions that say, hey, don't use alcohol while you're using this. It's going to be bad. We're in tiny print in the box where I couldn't read it. She was claiming I was involuntarily intoxicated because of that interaction that Scuff had talked about earlier, an unadvised interaction. And the court did recognize that in this current age, that could happen but then said, we're not persuaded by this. Uh, going into saying, you've got to prove one of four things. The intoxication was caused by the fault of someone else. Someone slipped shit in your drink and you weren't aware of it. Where uh, It was caused by an innocent mistake on the part of a defendant. I.e. defendant took a hallucinogenic pill in a reasonable belief it was aspirin or lawful tranquilizer. Somebody said, hey man, you need a Tylenol, you took it and it was LSD. By the way, real case. Courts don't make up cases when they're doing their examples. They find a case and they reference it. Um... A defendant unknowingly suffered a physiological or psychological condition that rendered you abnormally susceptible to a legal intoxicant. Uh, that is, pathological intoxication is much closer to the hypoglycemia uh, situation that Scuff had proposed earlier, or an unexpected intoxication resulted from a medically prescribed drug. Uh, in this case, they said no. Her intoxication was self-induced. She should have known that using that patch with alcohol caused that. That it would have made her more intoxicated. She didn't read the instructions. It's her fault. Therefore, we're going to hold this was not an involuntary intoxication. And we're going to say she was voluntarily intoxicated and thus cannot use it as a defense. And the law is rife with examples like this all throughout the United States. And there is, of course, the unspoken issue with an intoxication defense. How good does it sound to a jury? Scuff? It's a uh... If you've ever played the game Hearts, it's 
shooting the moon, basically. Uh, generally speaking, a defense will turn to it when the evidence of guilt is so overwhelming that there's no question of who done it. The only question left is why. And, and it's that's where you see this come in a lot. And there's also the question of what they call, and this is not me using terms, this is an actual term, the Dutch courage defense. Uh, you know, I was so intoxicated, I didn't know what I was doing. I was so intoxicated, I couldn't have intended to kill them. But you've got a long-running history of problems with them. And the night before, you purchased a bottle of whiskey and a knife. And the next morning, the whiskey's gone and the knife's in their heart. Where did the intent start? Did the intent start after you were drunk? Or did you already intend to kill him and that's why you got intoxicated? That is... Uh, I, I mean, like, I know what I would argue. <laughs> the, the other one, and this actually happens. I've had cases like this. Almost any attorney who does any intoxication work has had a case like this. The guy who gets so drunk that he goes to his old house. Yes, I've had... Uh, several of those. They they get so drunk and then they go to their old house that they don't live in anymore and they break in and then they get charged with a burglary. You're going to have trouble proving the, the intent element of burglary. Well, maybe, maybe not. Depends on what the crime therein is. Yeah, so this is another interesting one. Uh, so what's your burglary statute? Uh, breaking into any structure uh, where you are not permitted to be. We do not have the night requirement with an intent to commit a crime therein, not even a felony, a crime. So Kansas is uh, unauthorized entry into building structure vehicle uh, with the intent to commit a felony, theft, or sexually motivated offense therein. So we have, a sp like, we're really limited. So that's the issue for us with the walking in so drunk that you don't know, you think you're at your old house. Um, but also interesting. So the case that I told you about that was kind of expanding voluntary intoxication, uh-huh. Trespassing. <laughs> trespassing. Well, did he get so drunk? He went to his own home. I, d you know, I didn't check the facts, but got so drunk that went on to property that was not theirs and where they were not allowed to be. And so the question is, could he use voluntary intoxication as a defense to trespassing? And the answer the court came up with is yes, because trespassing is a specific intent crime. But in the so just for everybody out there in the world, when we talk about case law, we talk about two things that are super important. One is the ruling. That's what the court actually said. This is what the law is. That's the ruling. And then there's a second part, which is called the dicta. And that's everything the court talks about to get to what the ruling is. The dicta is not officially the law of the land, but if you read the dicta, you kind of can tell where they're going with this. Um, in the dicta of the case on trespassing, the court starts to suggest that the breakdown in Kansas may not actually be between general intent and specific intent it may be this weird other thing called particularized intent so but yeah just as a way of talking about it 
not only would voluntary intoxication be a defense in Kansas to burglary, it might also be a defense to the trespassing that you would have to go to if you couldn't prove the intent to commit the crime therein. <laughs> so at this point, we are going to turn to the questions that have been submitted by the Patreon supporters. Uh, the first one is from Head Foxen. Uh, is there a uniform national guideline as to what kind of vehicles one can be charged with DUI upon, or is it left solely to the states? It's left solely to the states. It's not only is it left solely to the states, there are some weird ass rules on like golf carts, on dune buggies. I actually, one of my first, my first job as a lawyer was, uh, working for the Kansas Court of Appeals. And I had one of these cases as it relates to uninsured motor vehicle coverage in insurance companies, but it had implications to DUI on what a motor vehicle was for DUI. And the law is so bass backwards. Like if I, I, I explain it to you and your mind is just going to blow <laughs> Uh, well, I, I get a feeling that what brought this on was last week uh, when we were doing the news roundup and we discussed the fact that there was a case in Oregon where a lady was charged with eluding police by leading them on a low-speed chase on her hover round. Uh, and the court threw out that conviction, basically. No, she was going home. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to give you that one. Uh, it's not a motor vehicle under the meaning of that. Uh, this one is from Quaxamifedida. As it pertains to diminished capacity due to prescription medications, is it the duty in a legal sense for a medical professional to inform the patient as to the diminishing effects of said medication? Further, if they fail to do so, is that a viable defense for any charges brought against the patient? Uh, to answer the second part first, yes, at least in Pennsylvania. Let's go to the case of Commonwealth v. Smith that we had just discussed. Remember, not legal advice. Other opinions may vary. One of the reasons in Commonwealth v. Smith that it was not found to be a valid defense for involuntary intoxication was she couldn't present any evidence outside of her own say-so, which they refer to as self-serving testimony, that she was unaware of of the combining effect of the two things, of the alcohol and the duragesic patch. If, for instance, she had had her doctor testify, no, I, I didn't tell her about that. Or the pharmacist, no, we, we didn't offer her any, uh, any advice when she filled the prescription. Certainly, those could be mitigating factors that could be make it inclined to find. You genuinely did not know about those effects. As to the question of the legal duty, I don't know. Uh, I would say that would be more of a question for regulatory boards uh, than it is a question for me if I'm doing a criminal defense case. I certainly may tell somebody, hey, contact a civil guy to write a nasty letter to this doctor uh, on that. Yeah, I mean, your criminal conviction might become part of your civil damages. Yeah. But... But generally speaking, like you can have civil obligations that aren't met and they don't necessarily function as a defense to a crime. Um, 
Now, this next one comes from Quest Authority. It is well known to all American lawyers that being so drunk you're higher than a Georgia pine is not drunk enough to get out of a contract. Thank you for that horrible flashback to first-year contracts. Uh, how drunk in arboreal terms is required to escape criminal liability? And is it a different species of tree for different men's rare requirements? Honestly, the answer is it depends on where you are. Uh, and doing the research for today's show, there was actually one case, I can't remember the name of it, that I reviewed where the court had basically said the standard for voluntary intoxication was so high it was basically comatose. And the defendant basically came back and said, well, wait a second, if I was comatose, I wouldn't have committed any crime. And the court said, yeah, exactly. Uh, then we have other ones where it's low enough that it simply didn't know what I was doing. What was so out of control of myself as a result of the intoxication that I didn't know what I was doing. A good rule of thumb is blackout drunk. I don't know if Scuff is still with me or not. I'm still with you. Okay. I just am listening. I'm just enwrapped. Uh, blackout drunk's a good rule of thumb for the jurisdictions that will allow voluntary intoxication defenses. Because uh, that is the point where you're not going to have a memory and you're going to be able to show up. But it could be anywhere in between. It could be from blackout drunk all the way up to comatose. Don't, not only don't know what you're doing, but can't do anything. Have no control over yourself. Uh, down to cannot consciously form the intent. And it's real important to understand that this, I mean, we're talking about this because this is kind of interesting to a lot of people. And it's interesting to us. Diminished capacity is fun to talk about. Um, but keep in mind that there is no such thing as so drunk that a judge just dismisses your case. Oh, yeah. The reason all of these cases go to court is because a trial court refused to give a jury an instruction and the defense appealed and said I was legally denied my due process right to defend to defend myself when I wasn't allowed to present this defense to a jury. Keep in mind at the end of the day even if you're claiming voluntary intoxication, you still have to get a jury to believe you. That's the important part of a, an affirmative defense. In the normal case, Boozy gets to sit back, go like this, and say, prove it. When it comes to voluntary intoxication, I, I get to sit back, cross my arms, and say, okay, prove it. And, and how, how and, are you going to prove it? I, I, I'd prove it. I'd find every person that knew them and saw them that night. And I would ask them to testify how out of character they were acting. Yeah. And I mean, generally, the, the nice thing if you're a prosecutor and you're prosecuting a case on voluntary intoxication is generally you get there through your case in chief anyways. Like, if I'm going to have to prove your identity, that you committed the crime, that you were there, I've got witnesses who saw how you were acting, saw you before. A lot of times there's a bunch of people who had interactions with you. Um, I am super fascinated with this topic. It means a lot to me because I did a lot of appellate work for other people. So I, even before I could try murder cases as a primary trial attorney, I was doing appeals 
on murder cases for other attorneys who were too busy to do the appeals. So I got to see this issue a lot because in murder cases, like I said, most people who don't do this for a living don't know, but a lot of murder cases, probably as many as half, there is no question of who done it. It's only a question of why. Involuntary intoxication comes up quite a bit. So the way we prove it is exactly what Boozy is saying. You talk to all the people who saw them before the murder happened. You saw them as they were coming up to it. Afterwards, when they were talking to the police, could they describe what was happening? What undoes defendants a lot of times is that they give an interview with police in which they're given a bunch of excuses. It wasn't me. I wasn't there. John and I got in a fight. It was, you know, it was voluntary manslaughter, but it wasn't murder or I was defending myself. Well, then they try to come back and say, oh, I was so high or I was so drunk. I was on meth. I didn't know what I was doing. And the truth is they were, they were on meth. They were drunk. Any of those things. But the courts found that if you are cognizant enough to give an excuse to the police, you're cognizant enough to form specific intent and you were not entitled to the, the instruction. So that's where this comes up a lot. So keep in mind the whole like what tree it is. Even if we were to give you a night, uh, like, oh, if you're this drunk, you can raise the defense. That doesn't mean you're getting off. That just means the jury gets to consider it. Either you knew what you were doing and therefore could control it, or you didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, our next question from Head Fox, and again, in relation to that, what if any level of impairment makes one no longer able to give consent? Um, that depends on how you're asking. Yeah, it's yeah, that that's, highly fact specific and a yeah. totally a topic for a totally different day. Yeah, that that is just that is way outside of the intoxication defense. Uh, Takel has asked: Is there any case law related to involuntary intoxication defenses that argues the intoxication is beyond what could be reasonably expected? Uh, for example, someone thinks they're drinking a pint glass of Budweiser, but it's really inexplicably bad tasting 170 proof of liquor. And they get arrested for punching out a cop. Um, they then go on to say, based on half-assed research, it seems like it could be a case of pathological intoxication. I'd say no. Uh, I'd also say no. In that case, you are not involuntarily becoming intoxicated. You are voluntarily having an intoxicating liquid that you know is intoxicating. The involuntary part is you got drunk faster than you would have if you'd only had one. It's almost a lot like the Commonwealth versus Smith thing. It's not a question of, uh, did I know? It's a question of, should I have? So the general rule of thumb is, if you're doing it to yourself you're voluntarily intoxicated. Well, and I'll give you an example of this comes up um, in that I've had is someone thought that they were, the defense was, I thought I was smoking weed and I was smoking wet, which is PCP right. mixed with weed. They said, well, I didn't know it was wet. I just thought it was weed. And uh, it doesn't matter. It's still just voluntary intoxication. So in Kansas, so the voluntary intoxication rules still apply as it, it, you don't get to go into the realm of involuntary intoxication just because you didn't know what you were smoking. Right, and, and I would say, as to the next part, pathologic intoxication, uh, that is something different. That is, I understand what you're getting at. Uh, it has an effect I didn't expect it to have. But pathologic intoxication, 
for involuntary intoxication looks less at what you are having and more at your body chemistry, your conditions. Uh, if you have a condition that makes you drunk faster than anyone else, uh, a beer makes you completely blackout drunk. And there are people with that condition. That's a real condition. Uh, and you don't know you have it and you have a beer uh, and then commit a crime. The first time that happens, that would be closer to pathologic intoxication. Uh, but it's not just the case of it had a stronger effect than I expected it to uh, based off of the nature of what you're having, like the difference between marijuana and, and wet. Um, finally, from Evie, can intoxication ever be an aggravating factor for an offense scuff? No. Well, I mean, so... <laughs> Uh, no, well, so, I mean, I can specifically tell you in Kansas, no, because when you're talking about aggravating factors, so in Kansas, if we talk about an aggravated offense, there's only certain offenses that can be quote unquote aggravated. And those are limited to a specific set of factors. Intoxication isn't one of them. Um, and if you're talking about in Kansas to aggravate a sentence or what we would call to depart to have an upward departure from the grid which is how kansas does it we have a grid of sentencing so when you commit a crime there's a specific number box you fall into and to go higher or lower you have to have either an upward departure or a downward departure intoxication is not a factor one way or the other you can't use it as an aggravator or as a mitigator so it's just it's a non-factor in sentencing see i, I was going to say uh it can certainly be a mitigating factor. As a matter of fact, I read to you earlier the Pennsylvania law, uh, which said, unless you, you can't use voluntary intoxication as defense, unless you're seeking a lesser degree of homicide from a higher degree. That is the very definition of a mitigating factor. It is a factor that lessens the severity of the charge. Uh, so I would say, yes, it can be used as a mitigating factor. Aggravating factors, I would argue that it may depend on the circumstance situation. We do the grading as well here. But really, when you're thinking of an aggravating factor, that's going to give you the guideline that you fall between. And while it may not bump you up another guideline level certainly may make a judge more inclined to sentence you to a higher number of years within the guideline. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, okay, yeah, thinking about it that way, I was just thinking on statutory factors for departure. But yes, if, if I get a DUI and I'm at a .08 and John gets a DUI and he's at a .3, yeah, the judge may be sentencing John to some harsher penalties than he sentences me. As a matter of fact, Pennsylvania's law already makes your level of intoxication aggravating factor on what, what your oh. DUI charge is. Um, our, our DUI law is actually written with uh, really four levels of impairment. Or, uh, three le No, four. Uh, there's general impairment, there's lowest level, uh, there's a mid-level, and then there's uh, high level, and then there's the highest level. And those are all based on your blood alcohol content on what range you fall into, and the penalties are progressively more severe. Kansas just has, like, no penalties for DUI. It's yeah. Kind of sad, but... So, that well, Pennsylvania's got a lot of booze. Um, 
So with that said, well, actually, I, I, there's one other question. It's from Dr. Quaxum. Uh, in jurisdictions that have legalized or decriminalized marijuana, does the law change as per voluntary intoxication? No, absolutely not. It's not a question of legality or illegality of the substance you are using. Alcohol is a completely legal substance. Voluntary intoxication applies to alcohol the same as it does PCP. Okay, so in the jurisdictions where marijuana is legal, it doesn't make it better if you committed that. But what crimes are you committing under the influence of marijuana? I mean, that's shocking. It's shocking, man. I like I see these crimes that people are committing when they're high on weed. And I'm like, buddy, isn't weed supposed to chill you out? Like, shouldn't we be shouldn't this be stopped? Like decreasing my job like <laughs> i mean you know, i just just generally what crimes do you commit on on marijuana do you shoplift some tasty cakes is that what's going on here uh i've had like aggravated battery like and people get like, i would i would weird. argue i would argue people no. get super weird and paranoid when they smoke a lot i, I mean like, I would argue nobody on marijuana is is becoming so intoxicated that they are beating someone if they aren't inclined to do so anyways. I mean, maybe, but, like, I I don't know, man. Like, I see a lot of shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that is, uh, yeah, that, that uh, it's legal for medical usage in Pennsylvania, so. Uh, so there we go. That's that's what I say. Uh, well, I think that wraps up the show this week. Uh, I want to thank Scuff for joining us for our talk on voluntary intoxication. Scuff, always a push. It's it's great to have you. I always love having you on. Yeah. Uh, if you like what I do here, if you like the legal funhouse, you can always support over at patreon.com slash lawyers and liquor. But if you want to say fat man, you're not getting my money. That's perfectly fine as well. We are live on all major podcasting services every Wednesday morning. And I encourage you to go to one of them and give it five stars. I don't care what you put in the comment box. You can put whatever you want. Doesn't bother me whatsoever. Just bump me up the algorithm. Until next time, this has been Scuffin' Dings, who I'm sure we'll be having back. Yes, absolutely. And I am Boozy. Thank you for listening to Boozy's Legal Funhouse, and you have a wonderful rest of your day.